got to make them in the first visit because they're going to be wor- they're going to come be worse the next visit, and there's going to be even more neurologic compromise that is not going to get better, and the, the award it goes up by the minute. The fascinating thing is like the majority of lawsuits come from these kind of bizarre out there diagnoses. Hello, welcome, Rick Bukata, August Risk Management Monthly, and my two compatriots today are Rachel Linder and uh, John Schufeld. Good afternoon, both of you. You know, I just you just got off. You're still at the hospital, Rachel. You're using a hospital property to uh, do this. <laughs> I may have to. I may have to record this and re- report you. You know, you're both in Scottsdale. I must admit, it must be pretty horrible there right now. Yes, it's never horrible here. Yeah, what, 100? Uh, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. No. And I want to point out, I still carried in my husband's Xbox headset. So it's not all hospital gear. <laughs> uh, does, he, does he know? No, take? he doesn't know. Okay. Um, we got some interesting stuff today. And uh, Rachel, you submitted some cases as well as one of the topics we're going to be doing. But first, let's do a little bit on the... No Surprise Act, something that ASAP has really been working hard to get resolved. And I'm not sure that it's resolved to the satisfaction of emergency positions. But in any case, there is a story on that uh, that we have here for us. Yeah, so I don't know exactly how hard ASAP's been working to resolve it or how you want to use the term resolved. But uh, anyway, the No Surprise Act. Surprises Act is something that was actually signed into law originally by President Trump back in December 2020. And it just now was enacted, you know, um, back in January 2022. And basically, in between then, the Biden administration was writing the regulations to bring this law into effect. And it's a big deal for emergency physicians because the estimate is that um, prior to this bill coming into law, about 20% of emergency department visits resulted in surprise bills, meaning that uh, people were going to emergency departments and then they were getting a bill from a, even if the emergency department itself or the hospital itself was in the insurance network, they were getting a bill from a provider who was out of network. And so that wasn't covered by their insurance in the way that they thought it was. That was happening to 20% of people. And so basically what this bill says is that um, that type of billing is no longer allowed under this act. So patients can now only be charged the in-network cost-sharing amount for those visits. You know, one of the in, you know, one of the challenges of it, and I'm literally renegotiating contracts with some third-party payers right now, is all of a sudden we have zero leverage. Because when, you know, we have a contract now and the, the payer came back and said, you know, we want to really reduce your rates. And I said, you know, it's funny you want to do that because last year you made $7 billion and your CEO took home eight, an, eight, an $8 million um, uh, stock award and bonus. And you raised your rates 9% last year and 2% the year before. Our costs have done nothing to go up. Cost of benefits, cost of medical malpractice insurance, and cost of uh, cost of employees. I mean, just the, the physician rates have gone up. Tell me then how this how this makes sense to you. And and before you'd have this negotiation and discussion, but now they're like, hey, you know what? You want to drop us? Go ahead. We've got no surprise. We've got the no surprise act on our side. So really put our back against the wall. And and I get it from the patient perspective. 
you know, you go into an in-network hospital and all of a sudden you've got this, uh, e this EM group who says, you know, we're not going to contract with, with uh, your third-party payer. Maybe they had great, or great reason, maybe they didn't. But all of a sudden the patient gets this bill, which is four or five X Medicare rates. I get it. But the way to do it is just not to simply say, sorry, EM physicians, you have absolutely no leverage in your negotiation anymore, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, so it was a solution, but not really, because the emergency physicians uh, got a little kicked in the head in this, uh, un unfortunately. And now that this thing is passed, you know, the idea of going back and making retroactive uh, changes and affecting the regulations is going to be really tough. I think maybe the insurance companies kind of kind of won on this one. So basically the way that it stands now, just to get into the fine print a little bit, is that, uh, like we said, you're not allowed to balance bill. So if you don't have a contract, so if you're staffing a hospital and you don't, you um, are out of network, you know, with the patient's insurance, you don't have a negotiated rate, you're not allowed to balance bill out of the emergency department. Um, the patients can only be charged in network cost sharing. Um, and then the way that you kind of figure out how much you're going to get paid is there's something called this independent dispute resolution. So this is moderated by some HHS certified third party. Basically, the provider and the insurer submit their best offer and to this third party. And then that moderator then decides which one to accept. And the losing party at that table has to pay a fee. Not only do they get the, you know, they now get the lesser, they, they lost their bid, but they also have to pay a fee for losing their bid. Um, so that's the system right now. Uh, it's being appealed. And so there's some movement to defer the implementation while these appeals are pending. So there's kind of some pushback right now on the rollout, but, but that's kind of how the law stands right now. And then one other thing, just a little asterisk there is that interestingly, this applies to, you know, emergency services in general um, and air ambulances, but it doesn't apply to ground ambulances. That's kind of being managed separately in TBD. Oh, uh, it's interesting because I thought it was the other way around. I thought the air ambulances basically could do whatever, whatever they, whatever they wanted because uh, somehow they, there was a carve out for them in some way a long time ago, but, but John, how does that work when you have to appeal each case individually? Yeah, yeah. Now, we haven't had to do it yet, but I'm anticipating that we will because I will. Um, it's going <laughs> to be a major distraction. I mean, it'll be a major cost and a major distraction. But again, the most important thing is it, it gives EM physicians zero leverage when you're negotiating rates with these third-party payers. We said, fine, don't contract with us. We will wear you down until you take our until you take our rate um it makes me wonder was asap asleep at the wheel i mean god knows i've been paying dues for 35 years uh how did this happen um well i think that everybody was desperate to get the patients out of the middle uh the, the feds were in particular but um i guess the insurance companies had more influence than than we did um unfortunately but yeah. that's the way it's going right now. The, the uh, No Surprise Act is not is uh, not really going in the favor of emergency physicians, at least uh, at least not up until now. 
Well, and, and not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but you know, we've, we've had a rough couple of years and <laughs> you, you would think if there was ever a time where we'd have public sentiment on our side and lawmaker sentiment on our side after COVID hell, this would be the time. And it's interesting. If not now, when exactly. <laughs> um, okay. We, uh, enough of that topic, you know, now that we have an upli- uplifting t- topic <laughs> to begin with, you know, Let's talk about um, this opioid business and whether your ER has a um, buprenorphine program. Do you have one, Rachel? I hate to put you, you know, everybody knows where you work now. So every time I ask you something, it's like, well, does Mayo have one? Or, you know, that's really not quite fair. Uh, let me just talk it generically. Do you know of places that have buprenorphine <laughs> programs that, um, I know of places, but I'm not intimately familiar with many places that have uh, buprenorphine programs. Uh, You know, we have, we don't have um, many patients that would benefit from these. Oh yeah. Everybody says that little do they know. I think we've done, you know, we've done some, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be using it more often, but even when we look back at our patient population, it's uh, right now we're, more homogenous than most uh eds john uh you uh have any experience with uh this i am not ex-wavered but some of my colleagues are ex-wavered and and prescribe um i've elected not to become ex-wavered you know it's really kind of nuts because you have to take an eight-hour course you don't need to take an eight-hour course to prescribe any opiates but you have to take an eight-hour course to prescribe this stuff and obviously, PAs and MPs are not are one third as smart because they have to take a course for twenty four hours, while our course is eight hours, which is really kind of an impediment for people embracing the, the necessity to kind of try to help out these patients who often do show up in the emergency department. But I also believe that there are many people who wear suits out there to work who are uh, dependent on these drugs and really don't have any. I think what I'm really talking about is the hospital having a program whereby, yeah, you go to the emergency department, but you get referred to a, to a doctor who's going to willing to accept patients and and prescribe buprenorphine and monitor patients and and uh, treat them in their office. And I think many hospitals have primary care physicians who are who would be willing to um, be part of a buprenorphine program where the ER docs. Uh, get get it started. This thing, I I think you got, must have all gotten it because I got it, and it was like I think it was from the DEA. Basically, you said, um, you know, uh, you can now dispense three days worth of buprenorphine uh, if you apply for a, a exemption to do that. So even that's a pain in the butt. Uh, so apparently, these exemptions are easy to get. Uh, in the show notes are kind of the where you where you do this and how you do this. Uh, and then you can dis- dispense for three days, which would hopefully allow a person long enough time to get into see uh, a primary care physician who's going to continue their uh, their their care. But you have to be careful. You just can't hand people here's a handful of pills. I mean, the, the pharmacy has to label this stuff and and date it and expiration dates and all of this other stuff when because it has all of these rules regarding dispensing 
dispensing meds, um, which makes it a little cumbersome. The whole thing could be made so much easier. And the pro program, I think, would not be all that difficult because, you know, I just saw, you know, more numbers about people who dying from opiates. And it's just like it's the numbers, you know, 70,000. Uh, 70, some, some, some very large number that's going up and not going down. I do wonder if this is an area that, you know, we're going to look back on and think, gosh, we we really weren't as proactive as we should have been. Um, you know, and we look at these, the paperwork we have to do and, it, you know, it's, and I think sometimes that's an excuse that we use, like, gosh, it's such a pain in the butt, but, you know, it's, it's fairly minimal. And I think these drugs have proven themselves to be really effective. And uh, um, I don't know, it's just uh I think a lot of us aren't comfortable with them. You know, these, these medications weren't something I was trained on in residency and, you know, therefore I don't use them very often. And I kind of shudder to think how many patients I've missed an opportunity to make a difference for. Um, so I'm hoping that the next generation of emergency physicians is getting a little more education on these. And I, I'm wondering if their practice styles are going to look a lot different than ours. Well, I've heard from people who have taken this eight hour course and they said, it's really um, very enlightening. And I think that at the end of this, they do feel confident in uh, prescribing uh, this medication, which we don't and have no experience on. And so it's kind of like, I don't want to be too arrogant and say, well, you know, we can prescribe anything we want. I mean, it's like, I don't think it's unreasonable, given the fact that this is uh, new territory for uh, uh, most of us. But I well, also believe that the ER is going to be the front door for a lot of these people coming in. And a lot of these, um, you know, regulations surrounding that they're, they're so artificial and probably unnecessary. And I think have made us a little bit scared of it. You know, like you said, we're, we're allowed to prescribe narcotics without this course, but not these partial agonists, which are less dangerous. And that's pretty silly. Um, so I think, you know, with time, our own practice styles will change too, but I probably, I think I already know I'm going to look back and think, gosh, I sound dumb right now, you know, for not being a little more proactive about this. Um, so, you know, I'll add it to my to-do list, but, um, <laughs> you know, there's, I already, the regulations are kind of crumbling down, like as of April, 2021, uh, office-based physicians can prescribe up to 30 days of buprenorphine without basically doing anything. They just have to say, you know, I have, um, an intention to do this and they don't have to do the certifications and everything. They just have to say, I'm going to do it really? if they want to do, or, sorry. All right, not up to 30 days, 30 patients. Um, if you want to do up to 100 patients, you have to do a little more like paperwork, but they can do 30 patients with basically just saying, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do all the, you know, um, the certifications and training and all that. So that's new as of mm. April 2021. I think we're going to see all of those, those walls come crumbling because people recognize it's such a detriment to, you know, getting this effective medication out there. It would seem that the, um, especially nonprofit hospitals, this is an opportunity to do some good for the community. Um, and and I think hospitals are the credible providers so that if they said, you know, we have a program for patients who are um, uh, drug dependent, a nice generic term like that, and come into the hospital and you won't, and you, and you won't be kind of like 
put into any kind of special place where you'll, you'll be embarrassed to go, but you'll be put in there with other patients in somebody's office who's going to be seeing them as a primary care patient. I mean, I think that that doesn't sound that hard. And yet, right. um, I think we, we, um, I think we're dropping the ball. Um, John, it sounds like you had an active reason not to get uh, go for this waiver. Oh, no, I, I've got nothing wrong with people doing it or, or giving the medication out. It was just, you know, I think it's one of those things that once you get you once you get it, you can't shut the door. And I didn't want to be the one in the emergency department that was like, oh, you know, she felt will do this. He's x wayward And so it was really just more for uh, my own uh, peace of mind than for any other reason. I prescribe, personally, I prescribe very few narcotics. You know, if you've got a fracture, yeah, but I mean, I never <laughs> really have, but I don't prescribe a lot of narcotics, period. And then it has to be a bad fracture. Yes. Yeah. Long bone, at least. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of uh, bones and the like. Uh, Is that my cue to move on? Yeah. We, you want to move right. on to uh, topic Fair number enough. three? Okay. So we'll this talk is, about a case. This is a case. A juicy case, pun intended. Yeah. Yuck. <laughs> So this is a case from Florida. That's where Pensacola is, right? Yes, that's where the uh, that's where they teach people to fly airplanes in the government. That's the uh, naval <laughs> air station there. All right. So from Pensacola in May. So in this one, it was I think a retired fireman went to an urgent care center because he'd been out um, in the water recently, but then developed some pain in his leg. It was bluish looking, and just you know, really painful. So went into the urgent care. And as he was sitting there in urgent care, he said he saw blisters developing in his leg. So he was seen by a primary care physician there who looked at him. I think he might've given him an x-ray. It's not clear. Um, told him he had an ankle sprain, told him to ice it, elevate it, sent him home. Guy went home, leg got worse by the next day. So he went into his podiatrist, basically following the uh, urgent care physician's recommendations for his ankle sprain. The podiatrist looked at it and said, holy crap, uh, you've got neck fash and sent him to the hospital. Um, in the hospital, they recognized what it was and kind of did the right thing for him, but he ended up losing his leg and, you know, went to a lawyer who took the case and they ended up, um, successfully suing the urgent care and the employer, which was the hospital. Cause it was a hospital affiliate urgent care. Um, and the, verdict was for about seven and a half million dollars. There was, I thought it was interesting, six and a half, 6.8 million for the firefighter and about 800,000 for the wife for having to put up with the guy. <laughs> I mean, help him hobble around. Jeez. Uh, and all I that mean, whining, you know, and screaming, yeah. get up, get up. <laughs> um, Washes. No, sorry. You know I mean? the challenge with neck fascia is sometimes it can be incredibly subtle and it is a, it is a true medical emergency and has to be died, has to be diagnosed. And, you know, not knock on wood. I, I don't know of a case that we've missed at least where I work in the emergency department, but I could see how, if you're not, if you're not beamed up to this, that this is a possibility, you could easily say, I don't know what's wrong with you, but it's, you're probably fine. Now, if the guy if the guy really had blisters on his leg and he was still sent home, okay, that, that that's a relatively large miss. But sometimes, as you guys know, this presents 
pretty subtly. You can have simple pain at the outset, and, uh, and it goes on to develop neck fascia. And so I wonder if this guy was a diabetic. I wonder if he had other, if he had any autoimmune conditions. I wonder if he had any other thing that would have tipped a reasonable provider off that this may be something more than just a sprain. Well, it sounds like, uh, Rachel, that you did a little independent research on this case because uh, did. I didn't see anything about the, uh, the blisters. He, I, uh, he was given crutches. So this person really believed that this was a, a it's certainly a typical ankle sprain. And I think that I, I would really agree, John, that if, if you don't have this diagnosis in your mind, you'll never make it. And that's why there are these this list of diagnoses where if you don't if you don't think of it, how can you possibly make the diagnosis? Um, I remember one day in the ER, there was a patient in there with back pain, and one of my colleagues was seeing seeing him. And I, I the chart this was in the paper chart days. I was just laying on the counter there, and I walked by, and and the guy had a low grade fever, and I I I said to my colleague I, i'm a little embarrassed to acknowledge this but this is all past history now i said have you considered spinal epidural abscesses in this fellow and he said say what and i knew we were in trouble because you can never this is a diagnosis like it's just like neck fash you yep. you, you got to make it on the first visit because they're going to be they're going to be worse the next visit and there's going to be even more neurologic compromise that is not going to get better and the, the award goes up by the minute. Um, I've not, not, not seen these where the, where the woman gets 800,000 for a loss of consortium or something like that. You know, uh, I didn't know that he, he probably is not worth 800,000, you know, in that regard, but that meant, <laughs> that's being uncharitable. You know, maybe he is, I don't know. He was a, he was a professional skateboarder. Get out of here. I'm kidding. No. no, he was a fireman, and, and, and you know, tired fireman. And he, he, they said he got it in the Pensacola Bay. I mean, what the heck? Talk yeah. about causality. You know, is, is, is this bay must be very dirty bay, uh, intact skin. You know. Uh, so my research also told me that he had vibrio vulnificus, which you know oh, is in that case. I agree that it is from the leg. Yeah, is, you know, from the brackish waters of Florida. This is like step one material and, you know, is known for forming bullet, which this guy had growing in front of him at the urgent care. So, um, you know, like John said, or you both said, I guess at this point, you don't recognize it if you're not thinking about it. It makes you wonder, um, you know, I think the urgent care becomes a little bit of a trap, right? Like you're seeing all of this mundane stuff, but you've got to, kind of keep your eyes out for the actual emergencies. And I think that that becomes a really easy trap to fall into. And I know there are lots of emergency physicians that are going into an urgent care setting these days. And so that could be you very easily. This was a family physician. I think much easier for a family physician to become that person because they're not, you know, the training is very different. They're not thinking emergencies first. And so I think that's an easier trap for them to fall into. Oh yeah. Yeah, It is. I mean, I've done a lot of urgent care work over the years, and it is it is the proverbial needle in a haystack. You know, unless you're thinking, could this person have cavernous vein thrombosis? Could they have a spinal epidural abscess? Could they have neck fascia? You'll never make the diagnosis. And we're all trained to think worse first. I don't think family practice physicians are. And so this for this person, is probably a very reasonable um, thing to fall into. 
Well, yep. there was a, uh, a nice article I remember that uh, looked at the nature of patients' complaints who went to emergency rooms versus uh, primary care, and uh, whether it be in an in an office setting or an urgent care. And we see the subarachnoid hemorrhages. They don't see subarachnoid hemorrhages. So when they see headaches in their office, they're not used to seeing a you know a killer headache. Because they go to the emergency departments. And, you know, when we see chest pain patients, they're seeing chest pain patients who have um, GERD and those kinds of related things that are not serious. And so they're not, patients self-select and they tend to go to the place that they, they belong. But sometimes, you know, it seems like an urgent care was a reasonable place to go for this. Um, and it's unfortunate because he lost his leg above his knee, which uh, really makes it, I think, hard to get along. You know, I looked up this list of the most frequent lawsuits, and it's, and it's 11 diagnoses. If you know these 11 diagnoses, you can basically say, I'm done. Thank you very much. I got it. Um, now, at the top of the list is CVAs. Before, it used to be MIs. Yeah. But now, but now and and when there were a bunch of these cases, they were all for failure to, to provide thrombolytic therapy. And um, now I don't know whether that's changed, but it, but there was a time when I looked at 25 cases, they were they were all, all for that. Um, myocardial infarction is now second, but these are all hard, hard to know because there's always this lag. How, you know, what it is it's like five years or something like that from the time these things start to the time they're done some ridiculous amount but yeah the even yeah it's yeah. like when i do these sometimes most of the times it's about somewhere between three to seven years on average for the cases from start to finish so there's that big delay three to seven years of angst an average i mean some of these are like they resolve a dozen years afterwards yeah gita pensad you know have you heard of gita Mm -hmm. She's the, the the really nice uh, ER doc who helps docs get through these kinds of uh, uh, trials and tribulations. Spinal epidural abscess was third. Now everybody has a different list. I must tell you, depending on the insurance company that you look at. But this in this case, spinal epidural abscess was third, which is you know really up there, pretty high. Pulmonary yeah. embolism was fourth. Uh, meningitis that's still around. Um, one of my friends, ER docs, uh, grandchild was diagnosed with um, bacterial uh, meningitis. And this was probably about mm, maybe five or six years ago. Fortunately, the diagnosis was made on the first visit. What is one wasn't one of those more subtle cases. Torsion of the testis, which is easily to get screwed up on, you know, especially if you believe that ultrasound is important. Um, <laughs> I never understood, John, why do people get money for torsion of the testis when, you know, can't you just pay them if, like, they can't get somebody pregnant or something like that? Um, you know, that you only need one. Yeah, it's a great it's a great answer. I mean, where's the damages? I mean, yeah, the damages, exactly. are, you've got what another one. I, I, that's a great question. Uh, we'll pay you if you can't get pregnant, you know. So go out there and give it a whack, see what happens, you know. But, and the other thing is, if you have a problem with, like, the aesthetics of, of the issue, well, you know, we could we could put a chicken egg in there as a, as the prosthesis, and you could have the biggest testicle in the gym. You know, am I getting a little off 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 
goes through here. Uh, I'm just really proud of myself for not commenting. Uh, Talking about the Cures Act update. <laughs> no, I was just going to say for this list, one thing I always point about these lists is if you add all these up, generally you still don't even get to 20%. So you said, hey, if you get all these 11, you're good. Actually, generally the top you know, 10 list still doesn't even add up to like 20% of all lawsuits. All right. You know, okay. Well, I'm just trying to help out here. But you know what I mean? The, the fascinating thing is like the majority of lawsuits come from these kind of bizarre out there diagnoses. It's not even like, it's not like they're all MIs and strokes and everything. It's kind of these one-off things. So I don't know. I, there's limited utility and kind of focusing only on the big hitters. All right, then I'm going to stop. Perfect. I'm not going to finish the list. Um, <laughs> so we did necrotizing fasciitis here. Yeah, let's go to the next one. Uh, 20th Century Cures Act. So this article is about um, blocking a person's access to see their medical record. And I don't really honestly think that in emergency medicine, that's likely to, to come up but i guess theoretically you have the uh well not theoretically you have the option of, of blocking uh, a person seeing the record the 21st century cures act one of the parts of it says patients can see their electronic medical record virtually immediately after it's generated and um they don't have to ask anybody's permission or anything like that it's they've always owned the record in terms of the the content the hospital this was kind of the um place that the record was stored, but they owned it. Um, well, the fact now is, is that patients are given access to these records. And so, um, although they wanted to talk about blocking, you can, can you think of any places where you would block a, a, a patient from seeing their emergency department record? Like if, um, I thought, well, maybe if some family member could see it that might not be good if they have the gc test came back positive or the rapid diet or something like that you know or maybe if you're i guess you're uh wanting to talk to them about a malignancy and you haven't had a chance to discuss it with them yet but you've done their chart right there there are probably going to be a few reasons that uh to do that so you have that authority but it's pretty clear the government wants you to make these records available and that they don't want you to block them. And that right now, although the, the, uh, the regulations have not been formalized, the law allows for a, a fine of up to a million dollars a record. It would get a little costly if you, uh, if you uh, were too liberal in blocking people's access to their, to their record. Uh, I could see some psych patients, so like a homicidal psych patient or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's going to be some excuses in emergency medicine. You know, you just I think you should know that you have the right, but you have to. But no, but number one becomes the patient's ability to access the record, which brings up this other part that we've talked about before, but which I think, um, I think is more important than most people consider because people are going to be able to look at your record and then what? So, you know, one thing, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's something worth bringing up again, because um, it's just, you know, habits that we've gotten into for emergency physicians. We need to be really careful about the language we're using in charts. Um, we, 
are so used to using our charts to communicate with each other, with other physicians, and not so used to thinking about the patients reading our charts, but more and more that's the norm. It's going to be the norm moving forward. And so I think we have to get in the habit of thinking about patients are reading this, you know, this is for the patients first and, you know, clinicians second, if, and think about, um, how to reword things in a way that's not going to upset the patients. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, that's going to be hard for us to get out of the mindset that that's our responsibility to do that, but it is our responsibility now. And, um, so things that, you know, we've done for a long time, like using labels instead of, um, like labels for condition. So calling a patient, um, a diabetic an alcoholic, a drug user, maybe those are all factual, but we know that they're a bit incendiary. And so instead saying, you know, a patient with a history of alcohol abuse, it's a few more words, but is not going to be as inflammatory as, you know, calling them an alcoholic, um, a patient with a history of diabetes, not just a diabetic, you know, we know kind of, um, feels, uh, less, um, or maybe more personable for the patients. And so getting our language right, I think is important. Um, we also know that, uh, choosing to use negative language is something that when we've, people have studied charts, negative language is something that we see more often in the charts of minority patients for whatever reason. And that tends to follow them. And then those negative connotations become part of the charts and part of the treatment, um, associated with their care later on. And that's something that, you know, there's no reason for that. And so, um, we just need to be really careful about the language we're using. So, um, things like morbidly obese, that's in so many charts. It doesn't need to be in there. Drug seekers, histrionic, um, words that we haven't thought twice about for a long time probably need to be, uh, eradicated from the charts in favor of more judicious language. I mean, I start most of my HPIs with this very pleasant, clearly intelligent patient, blah, 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 because whatever goes to anywhere, they're going to make, you know, the jury is going to make their own assessment, whether the patient's very pleasant or not, whether they're intelligent. But from my perspective, I start out charts like that because, you know, I, I know the patient owns a chart. You don't want, again, the patient, as you pointed out, Rachel, saying, wait, the, the guy just called me, you know, you know, morbidly obese diabetic who's here, who's here frequently. You know, I've read a lot of charts. I read one where this morbidly obese, foul-smelling indigent appears yet again demanding narcotics. And I just remember looking at this chart going. <laughs> write the check. Yeah, exactly. Write the check. If that goes, if, that, if you do anything wrong, the person has a spinal epidural abscess, and if you miss it, write the check because it's going to look like you're uncaring. You know, the other thing that's a challenge is you get a chart, and the patient looks at it and goes, wait a minute. They never examined my abdomen. They never did X, Y, Z. They never asked me that question. And I'm super careful about this. And I'm sure I screwed up nearly every shift because with macros and scribes, it's very easy just for, to have this complete exam like you're one of the Mayo brothers, no reference to Rachel. And, and, but I didn't do a complete neurologic exam because they didn't need one, but yet there it is in the chart. So just be very careful of the, all of their systems negative and everything else that's, that macros kind of fold into the chart that may not be true. You know, we did uh, an article, we reviewed an article from uh, uh, UCLA and um, uh, 
their 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 county hospital affiliated with UCLA, and they basically watched all these residents doing exams and histories, and they watched ten of them, and the the, the residents were not aware of the reasons that they were being observed. They thought it was for some other reason than the, the actual what it was about, and what it was about was. What did they chart with regard to physical exam? What did they chart with regard to history? And uh, without exception, they all put down stuff they didn't that they didn't do uh, when there was somebody uh, observing, or they they had their history and physical recorded and th then listened to. And and you know we all used to put down you know. All other systems are reviewed in negative, which is well. That's a lie on every chart, but uh, uh, but we were allowed that lie. That was a, a formerly allowed lie by the government that gave, gave us that box. But uh, I think that it's different now because patients know, will know exactly, and and you get into thing. They never asked me that. You know, uh, he never listened to my lungs or or felt my belly or those kinds of things. And I think that. Uh, they will know exactly what, whether you did it or not. I mean, it won't. There won't be any equivocation. And I, you know, John and you know, you and I basically do not want any complaints going up to the front office about somebody complaining about their record, their chart. They were not nice to me. They were disrespectful. Any of that stuff. The front office does not want to hear about about any of that stuff. So, to the extent that it may be. Um, out there and if if it's not involved with the lawsuit which was certainly most won't be it will be associated with making us look bad because we're treating the patients disrespectfully and i think the other thing is is that when people we talk about people being uncooperative i think it's probably best to just describe their behavior yeah. rather than putting the adjective on uh, uh the or is that a noun <laughs> or or whatever it is. And the same thing with, you know, I would be very, very careful using certain words like histrionic. Oh God, you know, you gotta be so careful, but you could, you could explain in the chart what they did so that somebody else could say, well, they're acting histrionic, et cetera, et cetera. But, but be careful about the labels. And the one I liked the most, most, the most is John, you, you have the, uh, the start off the way, people used to do consults in the old days yep. consults always used to start this you know it was a very positive view of the patient and thank you for this referral of this most interesting patient that kind of thing that's the way they all started out and yep. it was it was the old old school and i and i think that you could you could only be a winner you know starting out that in that in that old school way because even even things we don't think of, like patient complains of. I can easily see patients say, "I'm not complaining. I wasn't complaining. My my arm hurt." The record says, "I I can I was a complainer." So, the rules have changed, and the secret codes that we put down uh, for our own business and short SOB and this and that, the rules have changed, and I think that we need to change quickly because you know, one day it was there, and the next day. The, the rules in force. Yep, exactly. Where are we? You want to do this um, medication safety thing? Yeah, let's roll. Um, so this is an article that looked at 
the state of Pennsylvania and um, every serious drug-related claim uh, or problem, not necessarily a lawsuit, problem that occurred between 2011 and 2020 in, in Pennsylvania's 101 hospitals. So I was going to ask Rachel to summarize the 277 events that occurred over this period of time. Because these are not like, these are all serious. When you look at, and I'll show you some of the outcomes of these cases. All right. So I don't see an actual N. Like, I don't oh, see how many uh, numbers. Yeah, you know, that's, you know, that's really, I just looked up the N. You would think somewhere right in the beginning, they would have the N. The N is 277. All right. So 277 events in that time. So about over a decade. And they found that 61% involved females. The average age was 55. Events most often occurred over the weekend, Friday through Sunday, more so than during the week. Probably lower staffing. I don't know. More often in the evening than the morning. Sleep deprivation. I don't know. Maybe lower staffing. Uh, most common therapeutic classes of drugs. Uh, these were not that intuitive to me, actually. So cardiovascular agents, 25%. Pain medications, 11%. Hematologic agents, I don't know, is that blood what, thinners? What, what hematologic agent is given out in the emergency department? Because these- I'm going to say Lovenox, oh, Eliquis. Oh, yes, yeah. oh, okay. Got you, got you. Yeah. Um, Anti-diabetic agents, guessing that's all insulin. Yeah. Um, TPN, a lot of Mental TPN. <laughs> um, yeah, that's weird. Antibiotics and then general anesthetics. The um, these are all emergency department cases, and it's kind of interesting that about the weekends and evenings. In, oh, you know, they're all ED. Interesting. Yeah, maybe that's just the busy like times. Uh, is it busy or is it staffing or is it, um, you know, less supervision or more well, more well, registry well, nurses or who knows? Fewer consults like they're, uh, you know, we're doing it ourselves instead of asking. But yeah. anyway, that's that was a, a fact. And I, I think we're going to find, John, if you go through that list of the most, I don't think people would guess the most. The, the drug at the top of the list. No, I that certainly struck me by surprise. It's epinephrine. Uh, Fourteen percent, or forty, of the two hundred seventy-seven cases were involved uh, epinephrine. Sixty-two uh, percent of the time was at the administration stage, and eighty-two percent of the time it was a wrong route or they were overdosed. And then, and these are all relatively sodium chloride seems odd, but insulin, hydromorphone, heparin, propofol, diltiazem, ketamine, and morphine were the big ticket items. You know, I was just trying to do some math quickly. So if you just take 100 emergency departments times over 10 years, times an average of 50,000 volumes, it's 50 million patients. So 277 and 50 million. And, you know, we should not be patting ourselves in the back for even one patient, but 277 out of 50 million, we're, we're doing pretty darn good. I think that, I think that that's true. I think that the errors that occur, though, are these repetitive errors that, you know, when you give this epinephrine IV and when it was meant to be given IM, it's kind of like these 
these errors that that the nurses should basically be your backstop on and it's kind of like this is the every like the bullet going through the swiss cheese where everything lines up and and, and there's a a problem there's a lot of deaths that are, are associated with these uh oh these, yeah these incidences i mean um like uh like let's see here yeah here's here's one relates relates to prescribing Patient with type 1 diabetes was presented to the emergency department and was evaluated for a kidney rejection. While in the ED, patients had uh, elevated blood glucose levels, which were not covered with insulin. Upon admission to the floor, it was discovered that the patient was in diabetic ketoacidosis. Patient was admitted to intensive care unit and an insulin drip uh, was started. Now, I didn't say what her outcome was, but uh, when you look at the, the list, a lot of these outcomes are deaths. Oh. which is kind of like, uh-oh. And the idea of giving like IV, have have we all made that mistake uh, where <laughs> epinephrine was given IV and a person turns into this adrenergic dynamo kind of thing where they feel that their head is about to come off? Um, so I did a... Uh, uh study on lawsuits involving anaphylaxis and that was one of the common things we saw was administration administration of epinephrine iv including a handful of deaths and the story there was fairly frequently a patient was given iv contrast for a study developed anaphylaxis and then the radiologist would like run in and they already had their iv in so they would take the epi and just put it through the iv like you know right right past the contrast and then the patient would, you know, some old person or something, they'd have their MI and do terribly. Um, it's just like so tempting to give it through the IV, not recognizing that that's, you know, one in 1000 epinephrine that they're giving rather than the one in 10,000 that you would give if you were, you know, trying to, not the dilute version you would give if you were really wanting to give it IV. The also the other thing that I, I recall is that some of these reactions that are considered to be um, reactions to contrast uh, are, are really typified by bradycardia and uh, the slowing of things. Like a uh, and they 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 may respond to epinephrine. I mean um, to atropine rather than epinephrine. It's like you get two extremes. Like one's the one's the hives and itching, and the, and the other is like nausea, vomiting, and bradycardia. Uh, with with this stuff that that one probably is not going to kill you, but they probably don't need epinephrine either. And the the code dose of epi that they're giving that's in the cart is like ridiculously <laughs> high. You know, they give it's like 0.3 of epi that you're giving sub Q to somebody, you know, that's having anaphylaxis or not. You know, IM you're giving that IM 0.3, and then they'll go in and give one IV to somebody who's awake. You know, it's just a ridiculously like big difference in the dose. And of course there's, you know, an 80 year old lady getting that is going to take a huge jolt. Not all of them are going to survive it. John, do you do any review, any cases associated with med uh, meds, uh, too many meds, not, not enough meds, mistake in giving out meds. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I've reviewed a lot of cases over 30 years and I cannot think of a case that involved, that involved the, inappropriate or accidental use of any of the medications listed. Well, um, you're not in Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, I think that's, that, that's you know, those Pennsylvania no. people. They're just flying by the seat of their pants. No, it's, I, I'm still saying this is a 0.0005% chance in Pennsylvania. So you folks who are listening to Pennsylvania. You better be careful. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, I think ultimately you're right. Um, a lot of these were associated with, um, I think, lack of attention. And I think that hopefully the nurses generally will are going to say what do you what dose you want here now or what what you know are going to give you a chance to rethink what you just said or you know but there is one here where the nurse you know the, the, there was an order for kepra was it when she dialed typed in kepra and the first two two letters come up and ke and the drug that was dispensed was ketamine and that killed the person um, wasn't as effective as Kepra, but so I guess you can make make stasis and that these, and there was this, wasn't there this nurse who got jailed? She was yeah. like, well, uh, you're thinking of the verse said you're, you're thinking of the verse said case. Yes. When, uh, all the nurses got really upset about the outcome of that case. Cause I, she was going to get hard time. Um, I forget what the, she gave back, right? She gave back, yes. and she was supposed yeah. to give a little verse that she gave back. You know, de you know, details, details. But but I think that the nurses probably across the country were really upset about the fact that she was criminally charged uh, for this um, uh, episode of you know how to be considered gross negligence at least. I I agree with the, the nurses that 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 to me was patently ridiculous. Very you sad, know. very tragic. The nurse basically reported herself. She did everything after the fact. She did everything right. She was totally honorable, and she just got crushed. And I think that's frankly ridiculous. Yeah, I forget what sentence that she got, but it wasn't anything like uh, "oh my god" sentence. But just the fact that she got a sentence at all. Although I do know, um, I knew an anesthesiologist who uh, was criminally charged because of. Uh, the uh, gross negligence in supervising nurse and nurse and and I don't I don't know I don't re frankly recall the outcome, but I know I know he was criminally charged, and there are these cases where it it is viewed as so over the top that it is now a criminal act, not and not just a malpractice act. Have you seen any of those, John? Um, these were do doctors have been, or anybody else have been cr criminally charged? No, the only one I saw was uh, you know an inappropriate touching case uh, where a patients oh. accused the physician of touching them inappropriately. The DA ran an ad in the paper, literally, hey, anybody who's been inappropriately touched by Dr. X, please come forward. And they had another four or five people show up. Um, that's the only one I've, the only criminal one I've seen. Those are really, really dangerous. Uh, yeah. I was involved in a uh, a, a case. Uh, it, it went to trial actually because they he was this doctor was criminally charged with um, being a little too uh, friendly during exams, particularly of uh, younger girls in his office. And um, he worked with us in the emergency department doing some employee physicals. And so, since I was in charge of the ER, they basically asked me had I seen anything going on in the ER, and the answer was. 
you know, no, I hadn't, but, but you, 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 this is a thing that'll go to the medical board in a, in a nanosecond. And, uh, you're really, really jeopardizing your license. If you get, if you get even a, accused of this stuff, because it's like, once you're accused, it's like, it's very difficult to take that stuff back, even if it's not true. Yep. Do you want me to pull in these, um, actual med cases that we, yeah, you sent, in? you sent four uh, from your library. Yeah. So, um, these all kind of fit the bill for medication errors gone wrong. So one of them was insulin. So on this list too. So this one was a patient, I think was, they were in the hospital, but they were sent home and they were supposed to be dosed 80 units or they were supposed to be dosed eight units of insulin. And the doctor transcribed this using a transcription system um, and said eight units, eight units of insulin, but it was transcribed as 80 units and, you know, didn't see the error come up when in the discharge summary as 80 units, it was appropriate on the list of medications. It was just kind of a summary of what went on 80 units. And that was what was sent home to the nursing facility. And so the uh, nursing facility just based this off the discharge summary, which was transcribed and administered 80 units to the patient. And she ended up having a hypoglycemic seizure, respiratory arrest, and ended up with a profound neurologic deficit. And uh, the physician tried to say like, you know, look at his prescribed, you know, it says eight units on her actual medications. This was just a technology issue, you know, my bad, but not really my fault. Or actually, sorry, this one, she, and then patient actually died. Um, and there's a $140 million verdict. It was an Alabama wow. case. Wow. So they did not take the, you know, technology issue. Not, not my fault. Most people aren't worth $140 million. This is kind of like a send a message kind of verdict. Crazy. Huh? Yeah. It's a punitive verdict. Um, so another one, this one, a patient was admitted from the ED to the hospital and she was known to have a seizure disorder for which she was prescribed a hundred or 1500 milligrams of Keppra, which she'd been on kind of long-term, but for whatever reason, when she got admitted, that order was written only as 150 instead of 1500. And so she was just hospitalized and was given 150 milligrams of Keppra a day instead of 1500. And after a couple of days in the hospital, she ended up having a seizure. And then I was reading the long, wrong line. She was the one who had a seizure, respiratory arrest, and then ended up with this neurologic deficit. And, um, again, you know, obviously like nobody tried to do this. People, you know, we're trying to do the right thing for her, trying to get her home meds on board, but they just kind of screwed up with a digit. Um, and they ended up with an $11.2 million verdict. That was a New York case from 2018. It's also pretty high as well. Mm -hmm. Um, another one, a, a kind of completely different mechanism. And this one, uh, kiddo was brought into the ED and, like a fever, whatever, URI symptoms, and they were prescribed Augmentin for presumed ear infection. They The next day, they had some periorbital swelling and a rash, and so brought back into the ED, and the ED person there said, or I think it was their pediatrician, said, oh, I think it's just like an, an allergy to Augmentin, so let's just stop the Augmentin. I think you just have like a viral syndrome. Just be done with the Augmentin. So the next day, they looked worse. They had eye swelling. They went back to the ED and the ED doc said, 
you know, I think you have periorbital cellulitis now. And so we need to treat that. So they put him on ceftriaxone and didn't kind of bypass the alert that this patient had an augmentin allergy now. And patient ended up having like anaphylaxis in their parents' arms while receiving the ceftriaxone and died. Wow. And um, they settled for $3 million. And they like the alert came on and doctor just bypassed it. John, would you uh, kind of go through the issue about why young children and old people are not worth very much in terms of these settlements or these uh, verdicts? Boy, that was a setup question. The, uh, <laughs> oh, well, and it's true. I mean, because you would not think a kid is not worth a lot of money. The parents are all upset. The whole family's upset kind of thing. And you get $3 million. Come on. Well, so, so there's four elements to a lawsuit. You know, do you have a duty in emergency medicine? The answer is always pretty much yes. Did you make him, did you make a mistake? Was there an error? And that's, you know, why, why you're probably in court to determine that. Um, did the error result in some sort of damages? Then finally, what's what are the damages worth? And so for old people, quote unquote, is they don't have a lot of life left is the argument. They're probably not earning what they used to or at all if they're retired. And so the case values less. For a child, you have loss of consortium. They may have a long life, but there's no real earning right now. I think arguably kids are probably still worth quite a, this sounds really bad. I'm going to blame it on Rachel. Kids are worth a lot of, <laughs> kids are still worth a lot. Um, older people like my age and even Rick, um, not so much. <laughs> we see really big um, verdicts for kids. This family settled. So they probably, you know, for whatever reason, weren't going to, I mean, if this went to trial, lawyer, maybe. It, it could have ended up in a big outcome, you know, but but they settled. So I don't think the $3 million is reflective of the fact that kids aren't worth a lot. Cause certainly for yeah. uh, cases involving kids, they go for a lot of money frequently. Yeah. But old people for sure. They're not worth a lot. Absolutely. But you're not old. No, I'm not. <laughs> that's, that's correct. And um, did you have one more there? I did. So this one actually, like, I think this is the one that is uh, most, um, I don't know that, that I could see it happening to myself most frequently. This was just a patient. So there's a 91 year old guy is in the ED for a mechanical fall, just kind of minding his own business. And a nurse comes in and gives him chlorpromazine. Um, and he goes into respiratory arrest and dies. And it turns out that that was meant for his neighbor. Um, and in old people, you know, there's basically like a, I don't know if it's a black box, but like a warning for elderly folks, you know, it has this, the side effect or an adverse effect of respiratory arrest and death, you know, to be used with great caution and in, in the elderly and this 91 year old man was inadvertently given it. And I think it's a med we don't use a lot. I'm not sure that, you know, the nurse really had the responsibility to question that order. Um, and I could see that happening very, very easily. So this one ended up, they settled it for 750,000, which actually is like a pretty decent settlement for a 91 year old guy. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go, Rick. There's value in you yet. <laughs> uh, Brutal. We did a case actually a long time ago uh, too, where 
uh, somebody came into the emergency department and needed a refill of their psych meds and they couldn't get a hold of their psychiatrist. And so they showed up in the ER and this person was taking this mega dose of some antipsychotic. And the ER doc said, basically, this is, this is way beyond, you know, what the book says. And I wouldn't feel comfortable prescribing that. So what they did is they prescribed a more typical amount. And the fact is that the patient then on this much lower dose than they were stabilized on went berserko and had a, um, a psychotic episode that wound up in, involving his death. And wow. so the, uh, the, the ER doc was sued because he didn't give the patient the, the dose that he had been on, or apparently did not make enough of an effort to um, get some backup to say, well, you know, some people do need to take these these amounts, and you know, I don't know whether a psychiatrist is on call or not. I don't. I think it's kind of like, do psychiatrists take call? But, but no, I I don't think I don't. Th I think he did not take enough of an effort. But in any case, this person died as a result of suboptimally being given the medicines that he was stabilized on. So it's kind of like you need to know. Uh, the idea that at least in some cases, antipsychotics, at least the, the doses can be all over the dartboard in terms of what, what people should be taking or need to take. So those are your four cases that my friend. Yes, sir. Okay. 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 I, I have one that you don't know about. This is a surprise. Mm. All right. Um, this is from, uh, Mike Ritter, who's an ER doc at um, Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo, and he's in charge of their uh, educational program down there. And he keeps on sending me, he's very interested in the medical legal literature and uh, subscribes to this or that, and then sends, sends me articles periodically. So this is an article that's kind of interesting about the mechanism of transfer. Uh, so a psychiatric patient came into the emergency department who had tried to commit suicide earlier that day. When they were in the emergency department, they they said they were looking for mechanisms to kill themselves. So they, this person was actively uh, suicidal and you know they were going to, the patient was going to be sent to some hospital that could handle, handle this kind of thing. But in the meantime, the patient was, stayed overnight at the hospital. And the transfer occurred the following day in a car where there was like uh, nobody in the car who could be uh, responsible for taking care of this patient if he had any kind of issue going on. They had a quadri quadriplegic and an 80-year-old also in the car as well. And so um, this person went rammy in the car, jumped out of the car on the highway at 65 miles an hour, sustained all kinds of injuries, but didn't die. Uh, but his brain and all kinds of bad things that were not going to go away. They were going to be there forever. And the issue was, was this an Impala violation? Not only obviously was it a malpractice case, but it was, a, was it going to be a malpractice case in federal court in association with this Impala violation or not? And it, and it came down to the point where, whether this patient was in fact an admitted patient or not, because if a patient is admitted, 
technically admitted with all the paperwork associated with being admitted, then the obligation no longer exists. Right. And that was what they were fighting about here because it, but because in the note, it was said admit for observation and observation cases are not considered admitted patients. They are still considered to be emergency department patients. So if you have like an observation unit, those patients are considered to be an emergency department patients. So it got into the, the, uh, wording of what was said about whether this patient was in fact admitted to the hospital and properly filled out with all the paperwork associated with admission or not. That was the whole Imtala part of it. The other part about whether it was, you know, ridiculous to send somebody in a car with uh, these other people, that that was separate, as, uh, but it wasn't an Imtala violation. And so the... Um, the idea of it of you triggering an Imtala violation at your hospital, you just might as well go out and and you you, you look look for another job, because this is basically going to trigger all kinds of. Um, once the feds come in, they can look at anything in your hospital. It's a, your, all the books are open, and they can start nosing around. And it takes lots of lawyers apparently to fend off one of these. You know, we're talking about substantial expenditure, 100,000, 50,000, that kind of thing for the lawyers to deal with this and coming up with a plan to resolve the problem that caused the situation in the first place. So you don't want to be involved in a child violation. It's the, the charges are like in the neighborhood of $100,000. And for the, um, for the doctors, like who doctors who don't show up or something like that, it could be a uh, $50,000. Um, so that was the story in that case. Admitted patients are not Mtala cases. Yeah, that was something they clarified, I don't know, several years ago now. And I think that, I don't think it, the law didn't change, but there was just a clarification. And I think it was important because as the problem of kind of patients with psych issues has grown. Some hospitals were wanting to, I think, help figure out a more creative way to board these patients. And so, you know, some of them are thinking, well, maybe we can just kind of put them in the hospital while we're waiting for a place to, you know, a, a psych hospital to put them. But then they were finding the psych hospitals were saying, well, now we're not going to take them because they're inpatients. And, you know, we're, we're kind of getting in this circle here. And so. Um, of semantics. Yeah. So anyway, um, it it all becomes part of that discussion. Well, it, it, we brought this up once before, where if you're if you're going to play a game and admit patients to uh, to circumvent the Imtala regulations, you know they, they can basically look and see whether this was a typical admission, what was atypical about it, those kinds of things, to see whether you are. If you're, you think you're clever and you're going to kind of get around this regulation, but, uh, yeah. but otherwise people, people who are sent to higher levels of care, who are admitted on the floor and were transferred by ambulance to another hospital, you know, that's not Mtala uh, either. Um, but there right. is nuance about admitted patients being held in the emergency department, truly admitted patients being held in the emergency department. Um, yeah. The wording they use is as long as it's in good faith, 
And that's fairly subjective, but as long as it's a good faith admission. You, you know, yes, exactly. I, I think one of the things that um, has resulted from stuff like this is like Mike basically said, all their transfers now are by ambulance. And I thought, you know, when we did that stuff, it was like, well, you know, we were going to send this finger laceration to the hospital that had a plastic surgeon who was going to take care of it. They could they could go in the car. It's an, it's two thousand dollars to send them from from our little hospital to some other hospital, and that that bill is going to be you know if they have no insurance, they're going to get hit in the head with that. Do you send all your transfers, John? Uh, you probably are the recipient of transfers. Yeah, we get we get a lot more than we send, but for psych patients, we send that we send them out. Rachel. Do you send all your trans? Are, are you the the source of? Do you get or do you send? We we don't receive any psych transfers. Um, we don't send all of our transfers by ambulance, though. We we kind of give them the option depending on their stability because they're still even if we transfer them, a lot of them are still going to end up paying that ambulance fee. So we do some shared decision making there. Yeah, us too. Okay, well, I think that's all I have for this this month. Any uh. Last words of wisdom here. Stay, stay, stay safe, all, and thanks for all the hard work. It's uh, it's a jungle out there. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, everything's kind of uh, resuming. The world thinks that the the uh, the uh, pandemic is over, and you know, you know, uh, but we look at cases in L.A. and they definitely are are down. That's for sure. And this new vaccine's coming out that we can get in as of maybe September or thereabouts. So this is load up, you know, the more the merrier. You can go back and forth two or three times, get, you know, get, get right as soon as you get your shot, go back right back in that line again. That's my professional recommendation. Okay. <laughs> thanks, y'all. Okay, guys, thanks so much for your, your time, your words of wisdom. I appreciate it. This, uh, one last thing, Ron Barrow wine. That's the recommendation for the month. We had it last night. This is not the wine that you would kind of drink yourself. But if you're going to somebody's house for dinner, this is the kind of wine that you would bring. It's like 40 bucks a bottle, but it's better than that, you know, Kirkland stuff in a box. You know, you can't take <laughs> a box of wine to somebody's house. So you got to take a bottle. So this is a good bottle to take. In Amen. any case, that's it. Thanks all. Bye. Bye for now. Bye. Talk with you next month. Thank you, guys.